comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. You're listening to The Black Box. Welcome back to The Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. A few weeks ago, I had the honor to interview uh, writer and creator Brandon Easton. And uh, now I have finally had some time to put the episode together for you all to listen to. Um, this episode is called The Working Color of Comics, featuring Brandon Easton. I hope you enjoy the interview. I got a lot out of it. It was a really great conversation. And it's been a while since we talked about some comics and the comic business. You know, it's been a while since we got in-depth with it. So... I really hope, you know, you, you dig this and get something from it. So I'm going to quit talking and let's get to our conversation. Right now in the black box, I have a gentleman that I've been wanting to talk to on this podcast for a very, very long time. This gentleman was nominated for an Eisner along with artist N. Stephen Harris for Best Single Issue One Shot for Watson and Holmes Number 6. This gentleman has written for television. He's written for comics. He is a podcaster. Um, he's also a director, a filmmaker, a man of many talents. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Brandon Easton. Brandon, how you doing, sir? Oh, thank you. That's a great introduction. I'm doing great, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing good tonight. I'm doing very good. Um, thank you for being on the show. Uh, no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, you're more than welcome. I want to get started with basically like your career, like how you got into this as far as comics goes, because you have a very diverse career. Like I said before, comics, television, film, and the constant mixing of all of all these different uh, media uh, media forms. You know, in your career, in your writing, uh, filmmaking, and whatnot. As far as comics go. So what inspired you to do comics and also at the same time, what made you decide to jump into the career of writing? Wow. Well, as an only child, when I was growing up, I had a lot of free time, as most only children do. And I spent so much time going to the movies. I spent a lot of time at my uh, at the many comic book stores in my hometown of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Man, I I just did a lot of stuff by myself, you know, and I had a lot of friends, but a lot of my friends had brothers and sisters. They had a larger extended family than I did. So a lot of the time when I would like to hang out with a lot of them, they weren't available. So I used to go to the movies a lot and just spend a lot of time watching TV and reading a lot of novels as well as comics, as I said. So over the years, that turned into a love of the genre, you know, the science fiction and fantasy genre, more so science fiction. And eventually that led into me deciding, probably in the middle of my college years, that I should uh, you know, pursue a career as a professional writer. Now, I left out about 15 years of, you know, uh, going back and forth mentally, because when I was a kid, I had a lot of designs on being a scientist. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things kind of change and, you know, your focus changes and the way you view the world changes. So I eventually settled into uh, thinking about a writing career because I had a couple of incredible writing professors 
in my during my undergrad years recognized I had a talent for writing and telling stories, and uh, they kind of pushed me in that direction as well. So that led to me taking it seriously and then doing research over the years to get to where I am now. You know. Yeah, I more than understand, especially from the college standpoint, with um, having um, collegiate, prof- you know, having professors that want to push, they, they want to push your craft further. They want you to push yourself because they know the talent is there. They see it. Right. They want you to see it, and they encourage that. And that's, in, in all sincerity, that's a great thing because there are a lot of professors out there, especially with colleges nowadays, a lot of colleges run, running themselves as businesses instead of educational institutions. Exactly. Yeah. That will just push you in, push you out, push you in, <clears throat> push you out. And you really don't learn anything from it. And I think in a situation like yours, you got something from it so much so it made you do that career turn. So I I think that's I think that's great. Also, at the same time, when you said you were younger, you wanted to be a scientist. The one thing I've noticed nowadays, I remember being, you know, as a kid, so much, so many different things on television as far as TV shows, cartoons and whatnot, that jump-started my imagination into careers. What kind of career I wanted to do, you know, what I want, what I wanted to be. Like, say, for instance, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Quincy. Wow, nice. <laughs> and, and you know, for like two or three years, I wanted to be Quincy so bad, and then like it flipped, and then and then I saw the fall guy. I was like, man, I want to be a stunt stunt man, right? right. <laughs> you know, that was a great show, man. I love both of those shows, actually. <laughs> oh yeah, see, like I, I I have my parents to thank for like my love of seventies and eighties television because mm-hmm. you know we watched it together when we watched T.J. Hooker. I was like, man, maybe I could be a cop and a stunt man. You, you know, it just. These just all all these types of things just to spur the imagination to spur career goals. But like yourself, I went to school, graduated with a bachelor's degree in English with a focus in creative writing. <laughs> I fix computers for a living, and um, and I also have other side jobs as well. But the desire to write never dies. So right. um, exactly. so True. I so I give you props for pushing forward and pushing through. Speaking of writing, your writing, uh, you know, got you to a very nice spot this year at the Eisner Awards, along with artist in Stephen Harris for uh, a nomination for best single issue one shot for Watson and Holmes number six, uh, published by New Paradigm Studios. Yes. Now, what were the feelings and emotions that you had leading up to the Eisners and what was that environment like when you got there? Wow. Well, those are two separate things. And I'll start with the first one. Um, Well, when I got the nomination, I didn't really expect to get the nomination. And it was a hell of a thing. I mean, I can tell you when I first got the email and they told us to keep it quiet for a week, it was impossible for me to keep it quiet. But I I did it. I didn't you know, I didn't want to get disqualified. Yeah. So I did everything I had to do to, you know, uh, abide by the rules. But, you know, I got a lot of uh, positive, you know, positive vibes sent my way what didn't happen interestingly enough was no i didn't get any offers from any company anywhere as a result of the eisner nomination so it was a very interesting thing because i wasn't expecting anyone to roll out a red carpet but at the same time i had expected that there would be some kind of industry recognition for all the particularly black talent that year and because bleeding cool did a great article about the fact that i think there were more blacks nominated that 
that year, this past year, than it had been in a very long time at the Eisner Award. So the buildup to the Eisners was pretty intense, you know, and each day that we got closer to San Diego Comic-Con and each day we actually got closer to the actual uh, awards, you know, banquet, I, you know, I was starting to lose it, man. I, I, I was like losing my cool. I wasn't myself. I was really nervous because I really wanted to win really badly. And I didn't realize how badly I wanted to win until I didn't. And that kind of sent a shockwave through my whole psyche. But and that took me a while to get over. But as far as the night itself went, it was an interesting. It was an interesting night. Cause I, I don't think I've been in that kind of environment since my, you know, graduate school days. You know, when you everybody has those, you know, crazy award banquets that just everybody congratulating themselves. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting. And one thing I have to say that I'm noticing about the Eisners is that they've been reaching out to cable companies and television studios for sponsorship because I think one day the Eisners may actually show up on television because this year was sponsored by Showtime. Wow. And they had a lot of celebrity, and I mean actual celebrity, you know, uh, presenters. And I was pretty shocked by that. So that was very interesting. But the one thing I learned about the Eisners is that if you're up against a Marvel or DC comic in whatever category you're in, you have a very slim chance of winning because there's a machine in place that already rewards Marvel and DC, perhaps excessively, but the reality is that does exist. So when I lost, I lost to a Marvel comic, and you know some people you know debated whether or not whether or not watching the home six was better than what one or vice versa yeah. but the reality is that if you're up against marvel or dc you know they've got so many votes in the pocket without even doing anything without even campaigning for it that it would take a concentrated act of willpower to try to sway the vote in your direction so it was an interesting evening i don't think the industry is still ready for blacks yet you know, the mainstream yeah. comic book industry. I really don't think it's ready because I get the feeling that they know we're there. Mm -hmm. They know that there's a large population of African-American creators, but they don't really care yet because the sales aren't there. So one of the things I noticed about the Eisner was that, yeah, a lot of people were... You know, uh, you know, a lot of people were cheering us. A lot of a lot of people were supporting us. But it was all of our friends. It wasn't like the industry folks, our colleagues, were really supporting us or very happy to see us there. And that was a very interesting thing I noticed. Something I take from that, uh, you know, from what you you know what you've been been talking about um, regarding the Eisners is, I know how you feel a little bit just from the. This is more from the outside looking into it, right. Um, my first year as president of Action Lab Entertainment, in, in my first year as president of the company, we had a book that got nominated for an Eisner. Uh, Princeless uh, was nominated. Oh, okay. Nice. Prince, nice. Prin Princeless was nominated for an Eisner. This was a few years ago. And uh, I think it was, it was, I think, issue number three of the limited series, like for best single issue. Um, once again, uh, a book focusing on black characters got nominated for best one shot single issue, I think. Um, and if I remember right, if I remember correctly, I may be wrong on that, but it was nominated. And and everybody at Action Lab did a hell of a job that year. And that was and that was the book that kind of put Action Lab on the map. And I remember it being nominated. And, you know, it didn't win, you know, which was expected because I think the book that beat it was actually a really great book. And it wasn't. And if I remember right, it wasn't a Marvel book, I think. But the one thing I took from it was 
okay, I'm the president of a company uh, that's only been on been running for about a year. We're just a ragtag bunch of ragtag bunch of people trying to publish these books and get these out to the stores. And we're really like making our mark out there. And I figured, hey, you know, I'm helping to run the show. I'm, I'm doing all these things. You know, that's got to get somebody's attention in the comic book business. Right, right. You yeah. know, from a leadership standpoint, from a business standpoint, from an administrative standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, from like every single facet. I was like, it's got to get somebody's attention, right? Nope. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's so it's so like right. and so like I didn't I didn't take it personal. I didn't take it to heart. Just like you, it's just that's the business. And and the thing is, is that I think for the most part, when it comes to you know blacks or other mi- other minority groups in comics, I think a lot of times is is that some folks really want to see a change, and other folks don't really care because they know they don't have to. Exactly. And, right. and, and and my other take on it is this. You know, Nike has no problems taking black folks' money. Mm-hmm. Okay? Nike doesn't have a problem with that. Adidas doesn't have a problem with that. Reebok doesn't have a problem with that. Um, Pepsi doesn't have a problem with it. Coca-Cola with Sprite doesn't have a problem exactly. with it. Exactly, yes. Um, so... My thing is um, in the situation that I'm that I'm in right now, the, the quote unquote reinvention of Sean Pryor, as it were, is trying to make people understand that <clears throat> black people love to spend money and they love to be entertained. Yep. And, and, and we do love to read. <laughs> so I want their money because you know what? Their money is just as good as everybody else's money. Mm-hmm. And if I can build an audience off of that. I'm good to go. Right. And I can build that and make that grow into something. That's what the comic book industry needs to recognize as well. Don't you want that money? You can't survive off the same money that you've been trying to use for like the last 30, 40 years. And that's what they don't understand because I can tell you for a fact, and I know this for a fact without naming names, that a lot of the folks in power are very, very, very comfortable taking money from their very small vocal, conservative, white male fan base who's over 45 years old, not understanding those guys are not going to be around much longer. And that's where I've had the biggest amount of arguments. That's where I've had the most you know, virulent discussions about the uh, issues of race, class, and gender in comics. It's like, I just don't think they realize that. I mean, they dropped the ball at least five times in my lifetime. You know, I was, I'm, 40, I'm 40 years old. And I remember at least... At least five times and at least twice in the last decade where the comic book industry could have been more encompassing of the American demographic, but they decided to go right back to those, you know, those Internet trolls who hide behind their computers and, you know, hate on everything. And those guys are destroying the industry. I mean, I, I'll tell you, Warren Ellis wrote a great book year, as a book of essays called Come In Alone. And in it, he eviscerates the you know, older white guy, conservative comic book superhero fan, because he's like, these are the guys we've got to stop pandering to because they're going to destroy this industry. And then, you know, 12, 13, 14 years later, after the book is, you know, after the book was published, everything he said in that book came true. Mm. 
You know, and then if and for those listening, if you haven't read it, please go read Warren Ellis's book of essays. It's called Come In Alone. And it's called that because the first and last essay of the book discusses that's what's going to happen to comic book stores. When you go in there, you're going to be by yourself because no one else is going to buy. We've seen so many other businesses grow and prosper and extend and branch out over right. the decades. And in this age, especially in the tech age of creativity and, and inspiration, even when even when the United States government <laughs> aligns itself with the FCC and puts the kibosh on a lot of independent electronics um, when dealing with telecommunications. Right. We we are in an era of inspiration and creativity. And I don't see that in most comic publishers, not all. Most most comic right. publishers, you know, you do see it from a lot of in, independent individuals that have learned to take the ball themselves and just go with it. And I and I give them all the props and love in the world, um, mm-hmm. you know, if they can make it work. So it's it, it's a problem. It will continue to, and it will continue to be a problem until people within certain positions do the diligence and the work to fix it. Um, and the thing right. is, this isn't this, the thing is, is that we this is not a band aid fix. This is like a this is a long term situation, and you have to be in it, and you have to be willing to deal with the long term for a bigger, better result that right. benefits everyone. And because the thing is, is that like I don't, I don't know if if some of these people feel that like it's going to become like the NFL or the NBA and it's just going to be overrun with black people. And I'm like, no, nah, it's just, it's going to be a good. It's going to try to get a good balance. I kind of I kind right. of equated I kind of equated to the black quarterback being exactly yes. being you know because like look we just want to be people. You know, one day it would be great just to say, look, I am an American and I'm a person and I not have to say I am black. You know what I mean? But it doesn't mean that I don't want that. I don't embrace my blackness. Of course, exactly. I do, right. Because it's just part of me. But exactly. I just want to be an American just like you over there and you over there and you over there. And the thing is, like, I equate being a black writer or, or an artist or someone that wants to be in the comic book industry as as akin to be trying to be a black quarterback in the NFL, especially in the 80s and early 90s. Right. Um, you know, for every one talent, one great thing you did, they would they could knock you on 15 other things that they wouldn't knock on other quarterbacks. Um, it's it's the same thing to where Tim Tebow, who cannot even throw a legitimate swing pass. Right. Which is one of the easiest passes to throw in professional football. A gentleman who couldn't throw a swing pass was able to play football for two or three seasons because of his quote unquote charisma. And he was a quote unquote winner. But his mechanics were among the worst of all time. And he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. But yet there were other other cats that were even more talented than him. But because they didn't win a Heisman. They never either got on the field or they were automatically told, hey, you're fast. Won't you go become a wide receiver? Hey, you're fast. Won't you become, right. won't you become yeah. a, a strong safety? So things, things like that. And, and I could go, in, go into that all day. I used to actually study um, race and sports also in college. So I could go on that diatribe all day. But in, in compare it to the comic book business, because in a lot of ways, there are a ton of similarities, especially in the general management positions in sports as opposed to um, you know the management positions in comics at least in the NBA and the NFL you've seen a growth in black general managers 
Whereas, you know, in black and general managers help control rosters. They help with scouting and all that stuff. Right, right. And in comics, when it comes to black management, like, can you name one, you know, one black person that, you know, has, that was either a, a president a vi- or a vice president or like a director of digital development or anything like that over the last decade besides me? Mm. And, and I don't do any of those things anymore. Right, right, right. So, so these are the things. These are the things that, like, you know, people just really just need to try to understand. Some people may think that Watson and Holmes is your first foray into comic book writing. That's that's not true at all. You were at the forefront of the embryonic stages of Lion Forge Comics before they acquired licensed properties in a distribution deal with IDW. Right. Um, you yeah. were writing um, digital comics, digital comic series with Lion Forge, uh, such as Roboy, the Joshua Run, and um, you also did some um, work for Dreamwave back in the early two thousands. Can you talk a little bit about that? And with sure. those types of comics, um, the, the other part is, how do you attempt to connect your readers to let them know of uh, what, to do, what to do and where to get that type of material? Okay, well, with Lion Forge, um, it was really interesting meeting those brothers because uh, it was at Dwayne McDuffie's memorial uh, panel. What well, was the black panel uh, a couple of years ago at uh, San Diego Comic-Con? And I had mentioned, I had gotten up to tell a story about how I'd spoken to Dwayne a few times and he'd given me some great advice and I'd worked on the Thundercat show and da-da-da-da-da. And then the guy who was the CEO of Lion Forge, a guy named David Stewart, uh, he came up to me afterwards and told me he was going to be starting a company and they're going to be looking for writers. And I was like, all right, cool. This is great. So, uh, you know, he gave me his card. We exchanged information. We went back and forth. And over about maybe six months later, I was flown out to St. Louis, Missouri, to meet them. And we started building from there. And I've had a great time working for them. I mean, I've done quite a few projects with them. Not all of them have seen publication, but the the biggest one that's on the way is the uh, Andre the Giant uh, graphic novel biography that uh, it took me a year to write that. Um, I got the chance to talk to his family and his lawyer. I got a chance to learn so much more about who the guy was outside of the wrestling, you know, outside of the wrestling ring. But also me being a longtime wrestling fan, I was able to tap into my own knowledge and my own experiences to bring them to the graphic novel. So, you know, Lion Forge has just been a great, incredible experience for me, especially since it's a black owned company. And they are definitely trying to do something different. Uh, The trick with digital is that digital comics readers are not adults. Digital comics readers are by and large kids. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, they're not reading American comics. They're reading Japanese comics, manga, you know. So... Some of the ways that Lion Forge has been trying to get to people has been through, obviously, Twitter, through Facebook, through Comics Plus, through Tumblr, through Instagram. And it's, it's really tough because if you don't have a print version in stores every Wednesday, then you don't exist to most comic book readers, you know, because unfortunately, the retailer model is still based around showing up every Wednesday and picking up your books as opposed to downloading them. So... We're kind of in a place right now where Lion Forge had to 
go to IDW on some level and set up a publishing deal just so they can get their very fantastic material into the hands of readers who don't download their comics. So I think that there's a ceiling that you're going to hit with digital distribution only that has to be balanced by a published print run in all comic book stores across North America. I mean, you have to do that or else no one's going to buy your stuff. I think some some things that uh, pu- that some publishers don't think about, especially on the digital side of things, is also being able to touch on venues that are an additional source of income without without you know it being a quote unquote an Amazon or a, or a yeah. or a Barnes and Noble libraries, right. The digital, you know, especially libraries nowadays with their, you know, with them going in the digital realm of, you know, renting books. um, It's pretty major nowadays. And that's a way to also bring additional income and eyes and attention to your material. And so I just think in due time, um, you know, that's really going to be a big deal. But you are correct. Trying to find that balance and have that balance between print and digital is key. Um, absolutely absolutely it, it, it is it is key and yeah and sometimes yes you can start your plan you know this one way but eventually it also has to try try to find a way to go over to get to the other side too but um but no that's that's really cool and uh congrats on that andre the giant book i i um i had read another uh, andre the giant book by box brown which was also right. which was also pretty dope and like but the thing is is that the one nice thing about biographies is that there are many stories to tell so yeah. I'm also, you know, looking forward to reading yours too. Yeah, I mean the Box Brown one wasn't bad at all. And the the only difference was is that I had access to the family and to the estate, whereas he was mainly talking about his own overall view of Andre. Yes. You know, yes. so that was the that's the, that's gonna be the, when you see what you're gonna see the difference in how both books are structured, but I have to say and I'm not just saying this because I wrote it, but literally, it is the best thing I've written so far. It's okay to give yourself props. Yeah, it's true. It's, you true. Know, it's okay to give yourself <laughs> props. It's not, it's not like I try, I try to explain this to people. It's you do it every day. Sometimes it can be problematic to the ego. But every now and then, if you put in that work, you got to compliment yourself on it. Right. Because, you know, when you put in the work. You know, and you also know when you half-ass something, but you also know when you go all in. So, you know, in those moments, you have to be able to recognize, you can say, listen, I, c- I can pat myself on the back for this. Mm-hmm. It's all about them balances. Something that uh, I really wanted you to bring to the bring to the attention of our listeners and the people. Um, I remember you posting this on your Facebook page. And if I recall, you also talked about this on the two Brandons podcast as well. That's a podcast that you also do with uh, writer creator Brandon Thomas. Yep. You talked about black geek Stockholm syndrome. Yes. And, and <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So the first time I saw that, I was like, "What in the world?" And then I started, you know, I, I started laughing. I was like, "But you know what? This is a thing, and it's in, in what you said is true." And I just for for the people, what is Black Geek Stockholm Syndrome? Why is it a problem, and how mm-hmm. can it be fixed? Okay, let me do a little bit of background on this. Uh, okay. 
A couple of years ago, and I'd say about maybe maybe almost three years ago now, I started spending more and more time on Facebook groups that were populated by black geeks, mainly black comic book fans specifically. And despite the fact that me and about 20 other creators, black creators, independent black creators, that is, have pretty amazing graphic novels and comic book series and web comics and blah, 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 whatever else you want to say. We got some good stuff out there. These geeks, these black geeks kept bitching and complaining and whining and bitching and whining about how Marvel and DC doesn't do this for them. And Marvel and DC doesn't do that. And why isn't this? Or why isn't that? And I, and I was just like, well, guys, you know, they're not going to. Marvel and DC are not in the business of placating black geeks. They never have been. It's just the way it works. It's like if you go to McDonald's, you're not going to want... You're not going to order sushi because McDonald's is not in the business of making sushi. And if you get sushi at McDonald's, you probably might not want to eat it, you know. <laughs> so with that being said, I and so many other of my colleagues and cohorts just got really pissed off and fed up with the constant, incessant bitching and complaining from black geeks. I'm going to tell you. What really pushed me over the top, and I mean what really, really pushed me over the top, was when I had went to a uh, convention in Boston, which I should have never went because I absolutely hate Boston. It is the most racist city <laughs> toward African Americans I've ever lived in in my entire life. Hmm. And, I, you know, I went to college there. I mean, grad school, excuse me. And I went to this uh, convention about two years ago. And anyway, I'm at the convention. And there's like 4,000 panels. I don't know how there's this many panels. But there were so many panels about race, class, and gender in science fiction. But the people on those panels were not people who created anything. They were black geeks who, again, were bitching and complaining about what the industry isn't doing for them. And I just got really, I just didn't understand why, why these folks didn't know we existed. And then I'll accept the fact they don't know we exist. But then when you show them the fact you exist and you show them where to find your stuff and we're not even saying buy it. We're just right. saying, fuck it. Excuse my language. But just look at it. Yeah. Just take a look at it. You ain't got to buy it. Just take a look. Just know we exist. So maybe you don't have to buy it. But if someone else, you know, is looking for black creative or black material, yeah. you can say, hey, well, I know this guy exists. You know, that's all we were asking for. But they are so brainwashed. And I would say captive by the material that they grew up with. And that's what it really is. It's kind of a Stockholm syndrome because Marvel and DC will do what they want to do. They've done what they wanted to do. And as far as black representation goes, it has always been horrible. I mean, always been horrible. <laughs> so if you expect them to suddenly change just because you're bitching about it, guess what? It's not going to change. Right. It's never going to change. And... Even if they hire one or two black people, they hire them, the book doesn't do well for a variety of reasons, and they never hire them again. Meanwhile, a lot of white creators fail consistently, but get new books every other month. But that's another story. Anyway, so one day I just decided, you know, this is what it is. It's black geek Stockholm syndrome. Mm -hmm. Stockholm syndrome, of course, being the uh, psychological and sociological phenomenon of someone identifying with their captor. 
you know, after a period of abuse or of mistreatment or of captivity in general. And a lot of black fans are under siege in a, in a lot of ways by the editorial misdirections of Marvel and DC. Now, I'm not trashing Marvel and DC because I buy Marvel and DC stuff, yes. you know, but I know what I'm getting. Like if I go to McDonald's and feel sick afterwards, I have nobody to blame but myself because McDonald's has always been McDonald's. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I so. You know, I know, but I'm, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. So with that being said, it's like, I don't understand why black geeks still complain. Like, like when the Black Panther movie was announced, you'd think Martin Luther King was resurrected. You know, yeah. black folks are like doing black flips and screaming and hollering and running down the street. Like, you know, I'm like, meanwhile, Ferguson's happening and y'all are taking, you know, Marvel threw you one crumb and folks are going insane about it. Marvel Entertainment, I should say, yeah. you know. And I just think to myself, meanwhile, you've got black web series like CV Nation. You've got a lot of black creators putting out their stuff online and short films and stuff. And folks are not giving it a chance. Folks are not taking a moment to be like, hey, guess what? Look at what this person's doing. Let's share this link. Like, you can't even get these cats to like your Facebook post. You can't even get them to share. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, if DC's like, oh, well, guess what? Robin is going to be Batman's son. Oh, my God! 15, 000, you'll see 15,000 shares of that, and about 20% of them are black folks sharing it. Um, so, you know, that's where that came from. Yeah. And that also led toward some other things I planned on doing in my career. See, I, I know I, I get exactly where you're coming from. Uh, exactly where you're coming from on that. And I understand it to a T. And the, the thing that gets me the most is is that um, as far as like, you know, sharing links and whatnot, you know, now if you check it out and the, you don't like the material, that's fine. You don't have to share a link. That's fine. Right. But like when you're talking about how like if DC or Marvel or, you know, any other well-known brand, because that's what a lot of it comes down to is that, you know, we have been a society, especially our generation growing up, we've been inundated with brands. Yep. Um, and, you know, since, you know, easily since the 80s, when when that law got uplifted, they got removed and said that cartoons can, you know, can be basically can sell toys and all this other stuff. It changed everything. Um, mm-hmm. it, it changed a lot. And we became inundated with brands. Um, and so that's why, you know, you have generations like that still love stuff from the 80s, the 90s, early 2000s, because a lot of that was very brand heavy and very brand centric and not just a property. It became we went from property centric to now label centric yep. as well. And so and so the thing is, is that they're so used to these things being here that when something new comes 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 around and it's not by a fully funded company run by you know run by billionaires the legit the, in some opinions the legitimacy is automatically knocked because they they don't have the quote-unquote funding they don't right. have this they don't have that and they, and, and they don't know that they don't they and at the same time does it really matter did you check it out and did you dig it or did you just diss on it without even really checking it out that you know that's a problem to me but a lot of that is just brands and they but they claim that they want something new but if something new is presented and you don't allow it to grow how can that become its own brand if you don't if you don't bring something to it if you don't want to help grow it you know what i mean if you like it you know if you like it if you don't like it that's fine move along but you have to try to give it a chance first and then that can become a brand that can last for 20 30 40 years and but it's, it's it's really weird. It's it's like there's this like set brand brand of uh, limitation brands, and it's 
here. This is all I can absorb, and I don't want to absorb any anything else. So these brands that I that I absorb, they have to conform to me. It ain't happening. It, mm. it ain't it ain't happening. I'm I'm sorry. It ain't happening. Now I I do know now since you know Disney bought Marvel. Cartoon-wise, they, they, they want to make sure there is some form of diversity. They're trying to slowly bring it into the books, trying to. And I put an emphasis on trying. And even that is done a little bit haphazardly and, and cautiously. And sometimes I really wish there was a service called 1-800-ASK-A-BLACK-DUDE. Um, you know, or 1-800-ASK-A-BLACK-WOMAN. To just to say, yo, is this a good idea? Um, but that's that's not happening. And I've, and I've read tweets from some marvel employee employees are saying like it you know saying look it doesn't really look like we're doing much of anything right now but behind the scenes we're really trying we're really you know really trying to implement things but christopher priest said it best in an article in the la times he said yeah you're doing all this diverse stuff and he's like yeah but it's been i'm paraphrasing it's been done before mm-hmm. and if you really want to make a difference hire some black people yep hiring practices is all it comes down to man you know and so um and then the other point is is that one thing with this, like, you know, people absorbing these brands is that these all these brands know that they get free advertising from yep. these geeks easily. And the perfect example, um, the, you know, the folks, you know, Lucas, like the folks that run Star, the Star, the Star Wars right now, Star Wars treated quietly. We got a title. And so geeks, whether they be snarky, whether they be positive, whether they just want to yep. be assholes, <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They were talking about Star Wars easily, nonstop, for like four or five days. And, you know, and then like people come up with like, you know, complaining about the title, then making a hashtag like Star Wars rejected titles. And I put two out there and I said, um, Star Wars, the geeks will never be satisfied. Hashtag Star Wars rejected titles. And then the second one was Star Wars. Thanks for all the free advertising, geeks. Yep. Because that's what you're doing. Like. It- you should put one Star Wars. We're still going to show up on opening day. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Because uh, that's just how it is. Like I'm, I'm, I'm one of the, you know, like, I've always been a fan of Star Wars. I was like one of the things that helped jumpstart my imagination. So, you know, I like seeing the ins and outs. I'm like, well, will this be good? Will this be bad? Yeah, the prequels were a hot mess, but for another generation, for the younger generation, they think that's the greatest stuff ever, and, that, and that's fair to each their own. And I and I leave it there. But still. But it's it's free advertising. So so to like these companies are like, yeah, we you just saved us millions of dollars because you keep talking about it. So yep. hey, thanks. So yeah, it's it's a hot mess. It's a hot mess. But I really, I really wanted to bring that to light because I think that's just something a lot of people really don't understand, um, especially like a lot of black people. I do know like. Things like, you know, Black Tribbles, the Black Tribbles podcast. Have you ever heard of that oh, podcast? Yeah. I've been interviewed there twice. Yes. Good people. You know. <laughs> yeah, I love those guys. You know, good good folks. And like, you know, and they and like they try to spread a diverse word of comics and entertainment. So I give them all the love in the world, you know, because they, they reach on and touch on things that like a lot of people don't talk about. So yep. props to them. You also put together a film, a documentary called yes. Brave, New, Brave New Souls, Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Writers of the 21st Century. What was your inspiration and drive to direct and produce this documentary? There was a lot of things. Um, the first thing was I had gone to probably 
I want to say damn near 200 writers panels over the years before I actually broke in. And at, at least maybe out of one out of 10 of those panels, somebody would get up and say, hey, uh, why don't you have any black writers? And usually we'd be talking to a Marvel or DC or somebody editor, right? Yeah. And that person would be like, well, we love to hire them, but we can't find any. <laughs> they used to say this all the time back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So, you know, over the years, I was like, ah, oh, you know, maybe they can't find any. But when I really got into this business and when I really started, you know, uh, building a circle of people I could trust, you know, just like in, you know, what's that movie? Uh, Meet the Parents, a circle of trust. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I built my circle of trust and I started to find all these incredible black writers like Jeffrey Thorne or Hannibal Taboo or G uh, Kevin Grievous or um, uh, what's the brother? Oh, God damn, he's going to kill me when I, Enrique, uh, Enrique Carrion or Dwayne Copeland or um, Lamar, Lamar Giles or uh, Alvern Ball. I mean, there's, I can just keep going down the list of these people I've met over the years, uh, or Brandon Thomas, for Christ's sake, or Joe Illich. You know, there's a lot of other cats out there. And uh, forgive me if I forget your names, but... And I keep meeting all these people, Anthony Montgomery, uh, Vince Moore, you know, and I keep meeting people and meeting people. And, it, it, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how is it none of these people have gotten a single offer to do anything like this doesn't make any sense. I mean, my friend Jeffrey Thorne is a writer for Leverage. Well, was a, lot of, a writer for the TV show Leverage. Yes, you know, and now he's writer for that. Uh, it's an upcoming series called The Librarians, based on the Noah Wiley uh, franchise. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like this guy's created some, or worked on some amazing stuff. He has books out through Thrillbent, which is Mark Wade's and John Rogers' company, and still somehow he's not getting offered anything. So to make a long story short, I approached a bunch of people, including Tony Perrier and his wife, Erica Alexander, who we, most of us know from Living Single or Cousin Pam on The Cosby Show. Yes. Uh, you know, they have a book out called Concrete Park that kicks ass. You know, all these people I knew, and I'm thinking to myself, why is it people keep saying they don't know what black people are doing this or they don't know what black people are doing that? So I decided to sit down and put together a documentary just interviewing these people about what they feel about the industry, how they feel about being ignored, uh, how they overcame certain obstacles in their career and what inspires them. And that became, you know, uh, Brave New Souls. Yeah. Anytime I hear we can't find any that that an answer as far as, you know, black writers, edit editors, um, artists, anything. Right. And they say we can't find them. I, I just laugh. I'm like, you know, you're not looking. You're not looking, especially in today's Internet. age. you can get away with that answer in the 80s. OK, absolutely. You get away with that answer in the 80s because there was no way to it was limited. There were limited ways to reach out to people. OK, nowadays in today's interconnected world, as much information as there is out there, you can't tell me you can't find any. You know what right. I mean? And mm -hmm. like it, it, it disturbs me deeply. And I, and I also think, but I also think some of that really stems from at the at the same time it stems from. There's a lot of people in the comic book business that honestly may have never went to school with a black person their entire lives. And it, well, that's uh, man. I could we could do a whole podcast just about that because I wrote an article in Bleeding Cool about this. About uh, it was called Understanding Ethno Crunching, and it got me in a lot of trouble. I think that's maybe why I haven't gotten any offers because when I wrote that article, I basically broke down the reasons why blacks don't get hired in comics, and some people weren't happy about it. 
But it's the truth, though. I remember that article. Like, yeah, well, you know, well, some people don't like, you know, the truth. Who likes the truth? Well, <laughs> well, I think I think that's another problem too, and I think that's a society, like a societal thing because yeah, it's an issue of like when you you know when you deal with the general public, a lot of times you know like it could just like a black man, a smart, intelligent black man who is just honestly just being honest, is sometimes like the most feared person in the room. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, we, we're not saying these things to be a threat. We're not saying these things to be a menace. We're letting you know of the situation through the eyes of minorities. And we just want you to be aware of it. That doesn't mean I'm coming. I'm coming at you with threats and I'm trying to take your job. I might be able to do your job better than you. I'm not coming for you. I'm letting you be aware of the situation so maybe you can also help or, or come and talk to me and say, you know what? How can we at least get on the right page and, and start somewhere instead of automatically most of them being offended? Like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so said that. I'm like, how, how are you offended? You still got a job. There you go. And that's the thing is like you, it's, it's like you can't say nothing about the power structure without offending people who are still benefiting from the power structure. Right. Right. Yeah. I've lost I've lost friendships with white male colleagues of mine because of that singular issue where they complaining about something that black people are talking about. But nothing in their world is remotely threatened. It's, it, it, can, it can be depressing. It can be frustrating. It can be irritating. And the thing is, it's just that like a lot of times is we, we, we just want you to understand the problem. We, we yeah. want you to understand the problem. Not saying that you got to fix it right away. It'd be nice if we could work together and fix it. Right. But right. can we at least take a step on it? You know, like you remember, like I, I remember years ago, like this is how like my mind has changed, has flipped on this. Um, I remember when Erica Henderson was writing f- for the Teen Titans. This is pre-New 52. Ugh. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, you Felicia know, Anderson. Yeah. Oh yes. Um. Oh, so Felicia was it? Felicia Anderson? Oh, yes, Felicia Anderson. Yeah. Oh, okay. Felicia Henderson. Okay. I'm sorry. My it's mistake. Okay. I always thought it was Erica Henderson. I don't know why I said that. Felicia Henderson. Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate that. Thank you for the mm-hmm. correction. Um, it wasn't the best thing in the world. It wasn't the worst, but it wasn't the best. And I remember kind of being a little salty about it. I remember a lot of like a lot of a lot of my friends complaining about it. And then once I got into the business. Um, you know, because like I did things independent, you know, independently, did some self-publishing for a few, for like about a year or two, then started with Action Lab and really got knee deep into the comic business and learned a lot. One day I was just sitting and it hit me. I said, maybe this Titans book with Felicia Henderson writing it wasn't all it could have been cracked up to be because maybe the editor didn't understand Felicia Henderson. Maybe, exactly. You, yes. You, you know what I mean? Like I do. Yes. Okay. So maybe <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. Maybe the there's this disconnect because it's like because sometimes it can be a cultural disconnect, and if that person doesn't even want to take the time out to see the cultural differences, so we can tell the best story possible on paper. We're not saying that every issue, you know, is going to be like an episode of Different Strokes. Not saying that at all. But the thing is, is that the editor also has to really look at Felicia Henderson's work. You know, pre-comics and say, oh, she's done all these things. This is what she excels at. Let's take what she excels at so we can make the best book possible instead of just whatever it is that they editorial gave her to do the work. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Oh, man, I have so much to say about that. But another time. But but a short. (laughs) I will say this much, though. It is true. I feel that they've been in a framework and a paradigm 
of a certain mentality for so long, which is upper middle class suburban white male geek mentality, that anything that doesn't follow that very, very, very narrow trajectory, they don't know how to edit that. They don't know how to turn that into a viable story. And what kills me is that the comic book industry in the 80s didn't thrive until they got away from that to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, like Frank Miller, regardless of what people think of him as a person, you know, he did something different with Daredevil. And they allowed him because the sales were so bad. They were like, just go, go make this good. Do something different. Mm-hmm. You know, if they would just allow folks to come in and do different takes using people's personal background. Like, I don't have to put black in anything, but I can put in feelings of isolation or alienation. I can also put in my vast experience as a human being outside of my race. You know, but they don't ever think of it that way. They want a very narrow trajectory and a narrow uh, framework of stories that only appeals to a sh- ever shrinking population of readers. And that's really what the problem is. Yeah. And it will continue to be a problem until it is legitimately and seriously addressed unless they just want the business to die. Uh, and sometimes even though even though comics as of this recording, comics um, in the direct market have had their highest sales in many, many, many years. Thank um, God. Yeah. There's still concern. In my personal opinion. Oh, there's tremendous concern because the industry has turned into an intellectual property generator as opposed to a comic book industry, which is all well and good. But you got to make good comics. And I'm not going to criticize Marvel and DC. There's good stuff at Marvel and DC and bad stuff at Marvel and DC. Mm -hmm. The problem is the big event titles have not been delivering for what they were. I mean, because these books are like, what, $5.99 now or $4.99. I'm like, yo, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. You you know, Like, if you're going to charge me $5 for 64 pages or 48 pages or 38 pages, whatever the hell it is now, you know, for the, for the, for the event titles, mm-hmm. those better be as good as the things that changed the industry back in the 80s. And none of them have been. You know, the only one that came close to it but fizzled out was Civil War. Civil War could have been this generation's Dark Knight or even Kingdom Come. And they completely it fizzled out at the end. I don't know what happened, but it did. It didn't have an ending. It just spun That's off. My point. It spun right. off. It spun off into something else, which then spun off into something else, which then spun off into something else, yep. and it and it, become, it becomes problematic. I am curious to see how this uh, Secret Wars is going to play out, and I'm curious to see how this convergence is going to play out. Yeah, it's called Marvel's Crisis. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> yes. And and I still I still laugh that Joe Casada said that we that Marvel will never need to do. And I'm paraphrasing. Will never need to do a Crisis on Infinite Earth. So never say never. Never yeah. ever say never. Hey, there even you go. Bobby Brown reunited with New Edition. Never say never. That's on. There you go. Okay, before we go, I need you to like quickly talk about the two brand the uh, two Brandons podcast. Sure, and then also let people know where they can find you and, and um, any works that you have coming up. Um, also, okay, well, the two Brandons podcast. Uh, we we have a page on Facebook, so if you go look up two Brandons podcast, it's the only thing with that title. So you'll definitely get to it. Uh, Brand me and Brandon Thomas. You know, we had uh, known each other peripherally 
back in the early 2000s because people kept confusing us because there's only two brands and two black brands in comics and we're trying to figure out how they could confuse us but <laughs> they did so people would come up to me with his work and ask me to sign it and i'm like that's not mine and then people would do that to him so we just figured we should combine forces at some point just to talk about because we, we basically have the exact same point of view on what's wrong with the industry and it's been tough because we're both people who have done so much work in the industry, but we're still having the same issues that somebody who is just starting out would have in the industry. It's like at this point, we should have a lot more traction, a lot more penetration, and yet we're still kind of on the outside. So we decided to talk about first our first episode deals with Black Geek Stockholm Syndrome. Then we started arguing about movies and TV shows and comic books and movies and video games. So it's been a great uh, run so far. We've got about, I think, what, 16 or 13 or 14 episodes up right now? I don't remember. But, you know, it, it's on iTunes as well. You can download it there. I also do a podcast called Writing for Rookies, which is also on uh, iTunes. And it's all about how to break into the industry and how to write science fiction and comics and, uh, you know, anything, mainly science fiction uh, material, but it also talks about basic writing uh, techniques and skills and how to find a comic book artist and all oh, a bunch of other stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm out there and you can find me on Twitter at, you know, at Brandon Easton. It's all one word on Twitter. And I'm on Facebook. You can find me, uh, Brandon Easton. I'm trying to think where else am I? Um, I'm also on Amazon. If you go to Amazon.com, mm -hmm. you can type in Brandon Easton and see all the stuff that I still have up for sale. And if you go to lionforge.com, you can also find stuff that I've done for them because they're now selling material directly from their site, which is pretty cool. Oh, good for them. And for them. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic now. They really uh, stepped up their uh, distribution game. So that's pretty cool. And oh, um, I'm the I'm the main writer on an international comic book and toy franchise called Armor Rodders, which is a giant robot uh, series created by Don Figueroa, who used to do comics for uh, Transformers comics for Dreamwave and IDW. So it's basically like what if Gundam took place in the world of Avatar, and it's been a fantastic experience. Um, I'm currently writing a series, uh, Amarada's Side Story, with EJ Sue, who also used to do uh, Transformers and mech books for IDW. So it's been a, uh, it's probably one of my favorite things to work on, one of the most favorite things I've ever worked on, because I love giant robot stories. So if you go to uh, Facebook uh, and look up Amarada's, it's A R M A. R A U D E R S, Amarados. Um, we're also on Twitter. Check that out. It's a fantastic book. Free artwork, free comics. Uh, it's just amazing. We're going to be uh, trying to get a print version up in the next year. So uh, you definitely, folks, should keep a, a lookout for that as well. Oh, before we go, I want to congratulate you also on becoming a finalist for the Disney ABC Writing Fellowship as well. Thank um, you very much. Congrats. Uh, I, I really hope, like, I know you're a finalist, and I hope that, um, you know, I hope that you get it. Man, I tell you, the, the, for those who might not know, the Disney ABC Writing Fellowship is the premier writing program in Hollywood. And what they do is if you are trying to break into the industry and you win, for a year, DC, I mean, sorry, DC, Disney puts you on, on payroll for one year and you get to meet with and work with industry executives and insiders and they teach you how to become a better TV writer. And the hope is during the program, they find a show to put you on. 
So I'm definitely hoping I can get on that. I still got a little bit further to go. I'm at the final interview stage. So, you know, God bless and God willing, I can uh, take it to the next level. Well, great. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. Because, Thank you so uh, much. Oh, you're welcome. Like you know that old saying. You, you know, like that old saying goes: If one of us make it, we all make it. <laughs> yeah, rising tide raises all boats. That's right. You ain't lying, Brandon. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We'll definitely do it again sometime. Yes, I would love. I would love to. Yes. All right. Now, I would also like to add on to this episode that uh, since this episode is aired, Brandon Easton ended up being one of the 2015 Disney ABC writing program winners. So congratulations uh, to Brandon. I know he's worked hard for this and he's been on his grind and hustle for years. And to be one of the recipients or winners of the 2015 Disney ABC writing program um, is is incredible. So more power to him, and I definitely wish him nothing but the best in the future, and the best is yet to come from him. Now, this is going to be the last episode for the year. Uh, the Black Box will come back in January. We will return back to the music front uh, with special guest Julian Lytle as uh, we go through another one of Complex's very confusing and sometimes trifling uh, top 40, top 50 lists this one deals with R&B music again. It deals more with top songs of the 90s, not albums. We're just talking about songs this time. So I can't wait for you all to listen to it. I still have to put it together. We still got to go back in the studio, do some extra recording on it, because we got to give you that education, just like me and Brandon gave you that education today. As always, I want to thank each and every single listener, fan, whoever, however, for listening to this podcast still this podcast has been going on for five years 100 plus episodes for five years and i never thought that this would go for this long i never thought that people would dig it for this long i never thought people would love it for this for this long in your own special way a lot of you take the time out to like reach out to me reach out to our guests Hit us up in you know various places, whether it be um, the 11 o'clock comics forum boards, whether it be on Facebook, whether it be on Twitter, anywhere. I mean, when I was doing conventions for, you know, for a while this year, before I just walked away from it, I had cats come up to me in public and just say, yo, I, I, I fucks with you because you make this podcast. And that's crazy. Like, you know, the type of reach, and I'm not talking about I, I'm doing a show down the street. I'm talking about I'm in another state. And that just like it, it it's it's cool and it's 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 weird and it's cool and it's great all at the same time. So thank you for listening. I sincerely mean that. I do this. I do this for the love. It all comes from the heart. And I'm sure if you've listened to the episodes over the last five years, you've you've seen a growth or change and how the show is formatted. Um, my attitudes on a lot of things have changed over the years. But the one thing that won't change is my hustle. So sometime in January, you're going to get another episode. We're talking R&B music. Best songs of the 1990s, as told by Complex.com. So there's a good chance that list is going to be really fucked up. 
anyway, I want y'all to have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Festivus, and all that good stuff. And a Happy New Year. Let's try to bring a little bit of love back for 2015. Peace. And that concludes this week's Black Box. The Black Box is a member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at HHWLOD.com, where you can download previous episodes of this podcast, as well as Donnie Salvo's Tales from the Attic and John Carroll's The Carroll Chronicles. This podcast is also available on iTunes. If you're on iTunes, feel free to leave us a comment. You can also reach the podcast at blackboxpodcast1 at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next episode, dream big, hustle hard, and never stop.